And that's the intro music for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show. Thank you, Bruce, for Irish Voice this morning, and thank you for giving me a chance to announce what's coming up on Fuzzy this morning. And uh, look, are we all really bored with the election? Because in two weeks' time, in three weeks' time, in six weeks' time, who's going to care? But in a year's time, in ten years' time, in a hundred years' time, and even in a million years' time, people are still going to be asking where does it all come from? Where does the universe come from? And I'm very pleased to say that our guest this morning is a cosmologist who asks this sort of question and gives us some little clues as to what the answers might be. And it's Dr. Brian Schmidt, a uh, astronomer, cosmologist from the Mount Stromlo Observatory. And uh, if I checked his uh, credentials online, it's a pretty impressive lineup of things. PhD from Harvard University, a fellow of the Australian Academy of Sciences and the United States National Academy, the 2004 Bulletin Magazine's Scientist of the Year. He's looking, uh, he's blushing uh, as I as read this. And he's currently leading Mount Stromlo's effort to build the Sky Mapper Telescope, which is looking at the broad scale of the uh, structure out there in the heavens. And a very good morning to you this morning, Brian. Good morning, Rod. It's great to be here. Thank you. And also, Fuzzy Logic regular, Amon Lindsay. G'day, Amon. G'day, Rod. And my name is Rod. Now, uh, Brian, can you just give us a quick introduction? What would you say cosmology actually is? So cosmology is the study of the universe as a whole. So it's not looking at cells here on Earth. Rather, it's looking at how the universe evolves across the whole expanse and how the universe changes in time, what its future is, what its past is, what the universe is made up of um, in, in, in detail in terms of its physical constituents. So uh, what kind of evidence do we use to, uh, to answer those questions? I mean, what, what's our input? So our input is surprisingly diverse. It's not just looking at the sky, although most of our evidence does come from the sky. But we also look here at what the Earth's made up of, what the sun's made up of, uh, what meteorites are made up of. And uh, we sort of try to put it all together to get a nice coherent pattern. So pretty much anywhere we can get information, we try to use it. The reality is most of the stuff on Earth is kind of all mixed up, so it's not so useful. And mixed up in what way? Well, it's had plant life and animal life and been stirred up through you know, plate tectonics, and so it doesn't give you a, a very clear signal of how it relates to the rest of the universe. So we have to be pretty specific. We want to, to, to use part of Earth to understand how the cosmos as, as a whole are made up of or how they're evolving. Ah, okay. So now last week we had a forensic scientist on the show and I asked her what we do at a crime scene and what happens at a crime scene. And she said, well, as you'd probably guess, the first thing they do is they kind of uh, treat very carefully across the evidence. So if I translate that to what you're just saying about the Earth, is geological processes, nature and so on, has jumbled up the evidence and it's a bit hard to see what's going on. Um, so, look, how did you get into this field? Well, sort of by accident. When I was finishing high school back um, a fair time ago, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I was always going to become a meteorologist, and I worked for the National Weather Service uh, up where I grew up in Alaska, and uh, it wasn't quite what I had expected. And uh, so I said, geez, I don't know what I'm going to do. And so I sort of went off to, to university to do without, without a clear picture of what I was going to do. So I chose a subject, which I would do for free, astronomy. And I've never uh, really looked back from that decision. Oh, okay. Well, we're going to get into some more detail of your, of your work. But uh, I'm going to drop into some This Day in Science. And I'll do that largely because, not just because they're interesting things in their own right, but lots of interesting things come out when you look at what happens. So here's one. This is... I, I presume it's Henri Alexandre de Sandres. I can't even pronounce the name, but he was born on the 24th of July, 1853, and he was a French astrophysicist who invented the spectroheliograph, try saying that after a stiff drink, to photograph the sun and made extensive studies of solar chromosphere and solar activity. Oh, well, okay, let's, there's a, some technical words there. What's a chromosphere? So the chromosphere is the part of the sun that's really, really hot, like a million degrees, that's just sort of outside the surface 
uh, just outside of the, the surface of the sun. And it's what you see if you see a, sol a total solar eclipse. It's the really pretty part of the, of the eclipse. And, and what sort of things will we learn when we look at it? I mean, this guy says, uh, he observed, this is uh, Henri, he observed spectra of planets and stars and measured their radial velocities of and determined the rotation rates of Uranus, Jupiter and Saturn. Okay, so there's a real jumble of things there. Well, like most astronomers, he, he did a lot of things, I think. And so the chromosphere is just sort of the, the edge of the sun, and it's, it's quite complicated. The physics there back in 1895 would have been really involved all the stuff that Einstein did because it's relativistic physics, a lot of it, and they didn't understand that back then. So right. that's one of the first things where you get to start learning how to use those, the new physics of the 20th century and the observations no. that came before that. And, and back then they used to talk about the sun burning, didn't they? I mean, they didn't really... Did they know back then about nuclear processes, fission, fusion, and uh, the things that actually power the sun? No, it wasn't until the 1930s we really sorted all that out. Uh, they knew back... I mean, there was original idea that, you know, the sun was made of wood, but when you figure out how long the sun would last, even if the whole thing was wood, not very long, so it's a problem. Actually, I do recall seeing some figures about that. I mean, people had this idea that if, well, the sun was a grab your ball of fire. Well, if you had a lump of coal the size of a sun, it'd probably burn out about about well, a couple of thousand years. And that was a theory that they used with a rate of combustion. Yeah. Years, we all know the sun is far more older than that. Yeah, and Lord Kelvin, uh, people will think maybe that name, Kelvin is the way we describe temperature, thought about it. and He sort of realized that there was a time scale to the sun um, and you really couldn't reconcile with how long Earth had been around, even back in the mid 1800s. So they knew they were missing something. They just didn't know what they were missing. And you couldn't see the smoke coming off of this. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, you burn it hot enough. You know, coal doesn't let out much smoke either. But they knew there was there had to be an energy source that allowed the sun to to last. If it was just you know born hot and cooling. Uh, you know, it, it would only last for you know uh, a couple million years. I think is the what we call the Kelvin-Helmholtz time scale of the sun. We have a very fancy name uh, as astronomers do for describing these things. Ah, now didn't we have a similar thing about the age of the Earth, where the Earth should have cooled down by now, but there's also nuclear processes going on that which keep the core of it warm? Is that yeah, the same right? basic idea? Yeah. Well, here's another gentleman. This is Sir William Abney, born on the 24th of July, 1843, an English chemist and astronomer who investigated colour photography. So there's a di direct uh, connection to uh, Henri because uh, colour photography and looking at the colour of the things, and, but also colour vision. So in a few weeks ago, we had uh, on Fuzzy Logic a neuroscientist who was uh, using modelling the way the retina... Uh, actually picks up light and so that they can make an artificial eye. And you think about some of the complicated mathematics behind that, that would be really interesting. This is out here at the ANU. Anyway, so William Abney uh, pioneered a method to measure the relative proportions of the primaries of a sample colour. And he was the first to suggest a relationship between a star's rapid rotation and broadened lines in its spectrum. Okay. That doesn't mean a lot to me, that one. Well, so when a star is rotating, yeah. um, part of the sun, the star is coming towards you, and part of it's going away, one edge of it and the other edge of it. One, the one edge of the star, when it's rotating, is going away from you, and so its light is shifted by what we call the Doppler effect. And so the same thing that causes sound to change pitch of a car going by you happens to light. And if stars are rotating really fast, it can cause... Part of the star to be going away from you, part of it to be going towards you, and that causes their their um, colors of what we call a spectral line, which is a part of uh, how a star emits light uh, when there is an element such as hydrogen in it. It it absorbs a very very peculiar color in the course of hydrogen, a pink color, and so if uh, the Doppler ship basically means that it absorbs a, the, the star will have a little larger dip in color uh, to both a, you know, a little pinker and a little less pink 
uh, and it just causes the amount of color it absorbs um, to be a bit more, a bit broader, more color absorbed. So is that only going to work for stars that are close enough like our own sun? I mean, a, a star that's anywhere outside our solar system is just a point of light, isn't it? It is a point of light, but nonetheless, it's still rotating with part of it coming towards you and part of it going away. And when we we take the spectrum, we spread the colors, we get to average, you know, add up all of the light coming from the star. So even though it's a point of light, it still still is reflected in what we see um, in that uh, the, the color is mixed up and has this effect. Which I, I find it amazing, you know, that it's such a long way to those places, and yet we can point our instruments up into the sky and we can actually have a pretty good idea what's going on up there. Um, let's do another one. This one is uh, our death. This is Sir Richard Doll, who died on the 24th of July. He was born on 1912. And he's a British epidemiologist who was... Okay, now we're completely off astronomy here, and I've thrown this one in just because I, I like the unusual ones. Uh, one of the first two researchers to link cigarette smoking to lung cancer. And, of course, we're now seeing this thing with climate change, aren't we? And many scientists are making the parallel connections with the denial of cigarette smoking and how climate change isn't actually a real effect caused by humans. Um, this one also, Sir James Chadwick, who died on 24th July 1974. He was the English physicist who received the Nobel Prize for Physics and he discovered the neutron. Now, neutrons are, uh, figure heavily in astronomy, don't they? Uh, neutron stars and the like? Well, neutrons are important. There are uh, lots of neutrons out in, uh, out in the universe, so they're almost as important as protons and electrons. The hard part about a neutron is because it's electrically neutral, it means it's harder to find because it doesn't interact with things as easily as a proton or a neutron. It turns out the reason like when you slam a book together, it's not because of the neutrons hitting neutrons that uh, you can't push a book through itself. It's because of the protons and the electron and their very strong electrical forces that they have. Those are much, much stronger than, um, in most cases than the nuclear forces that we see uh, that affect a neutron. Oh, okay. And, uh, well, here's, here's another one. This one is an event. This is the Moon Relay in 1954. The sound of the human voice for the first time ever was transmitted beyond the ionosphere and returned to the Earth after reflecting off the Moon. It must have shouted very loud. <laughs> I think it's a, a radio transmission. Uh, the objective of the communication relay project was to add another option for the Navy's secure global communications technology that could reduce the vulnerability of ionospheric storms cutting off radio transmissions to the U.S. fleet. Now, when we had uh, Dr. Phil Nicholson on recently, he was talking about the moon and tidal forces and so on, and about how the moon is actually moving away from the Earth at about 4 centimetres per year. Interesting, and that was to do with tidal forces, that the tidal forces are soaking up the energy and um, allowing it to slip away. Yep, so at some time in the future, those beautiful total eclipses we talked about earlier are going to no longer be, everything's going to be what we call an annular eclipse, because the moon is going to be so far away, can never completely cover up the sun. So uh, that'll be a sad day, actually. Uh, I don't expect I'll be, we'll be around to see it, though. I hope not. <laughs> I don't want to be that old. You're actually, right. just in uh, space news, I noticed that is in the, the last hour, so that was the 35th anniversary of the Apollo-Soyuz link-up, and it was probably like uh, the first effort in international space cooperation uh, that you actually had, uh, well, it was actually the last flight of the U.S. Apollo spacecraft in 1975, and it... Uh, linked up with uh, the Soyuz spacecraft and from there efforts uh, began we had uh, the space shuttle linking up with Mir and now with the International Space Station um, uh, Russian rockets and the like it's so amazing that even in that time in almost well, Cold War hysteria that this was, there was an international cooperation which uh, the whole world has uh, benefited from that well, well said Amon and uh, I think that fits nicely with my opening words about politics and so on and one thing I like about science is it brings people together and it's the thing that we can share as humans. We all look out to the sky and we see, we look up at the heavens and we think, isn't that just wonderful? Or we look at the structure of flower and, and insects and I could get a little poetic here. And I have to admit that one time when I was uh, waiting for a bus in Mawson, I, I uh, saw this huge body of some sort. Uh, uh, sometime, uh, I was really convinced that that was the International Space Station uh, coming over Canberra on one of its orbits. It was truly a sight to behold. 
streaking across the sky. Oh, you mean actually did it leave a, a trail of some sort? And, no, not a trail, but I, I mean, there's very bright reflected light outside yeah. the space. The and and how fast did it move across the sky? Of uh, probably about three or four times, uh, we might see like a commercial jetliner flying over. Yeah. Far more faster. Really? Do you, what, what do you think, Brian? Do you think that might have been an, a sky grazing um, asteroid? Well, let's see. I mean, when the International Space Station um, passes over, you can actually look it up on the web, and they have a little thing that tracks the satellite and tells you when it's visible. But normally it would take about two minutes to clear the horizon. So it's a little faster, yeah, than a jet, but it's not a streak. It's, it's moving, um, you know, very perceptibly across the sky. But two minutes from, more or less, from horizon to horizon. Wow. That sounds bad, Ryan. Uh, and so listeners might be interested in, there's a website called Heavens Above, and they, and that's, I think, maybe one that Brian is referring to. And when I was staying down on the East Gippsland coast one year, and I said to the family, at five minutes to six, at 140 degrees, 10 degrees above the horizon, we are going, according to this website, see a flare off the Iridium satellite. And, sh- and they all went, yeah, yeah. So we all stood down there. And sure enough, this little flickered into into view. And then after about a minute, it, it flickered out again. And so the big panels catch the sunlight as it's just the right angle. Yeah, they're quite remarkable to, to see. They can be incredibly bright. So I went out when this first happened and went out and looked at one. And it was, you know, 100 times brighter than Venus, the one I saw. It only lasted for probably 10 seconds. Uh, but 100 times brighter than Venus is about as bright as one of the things I study, supernovae, one uh, occurred in our own galaxy would look. And it was so bright that I actually had reflected light inside my eye. So this big halo in my eye developed. And I realize now what a supernova will look like if one ever happens in our galaxy. And it will be impressive, no doubt about it. Wow. Now, actually, I've heard, you know, we always took, like to talk about the, we don't like, really, but you do sometimes hear about the so-called doomsday scenarios of different sorts. And uh, is there one in which a, a sun in a nearby part of our galaxy does detonate and, and it showers us with gamma rays and, and extinguishes life on Earth? Is that, is that a scenario that you think is, is actually possible? It certainly is possible, but it's extraordinarily unlikely because the gamma ray burst, which happened probably in our own Milky Way, oh... It's not even clear they'll happen at all in our Milky Way any, uh, because it, it seems they, they need to be in special types of galaxies that haven't produced many metals yet. But if they did happen, it would be probably only one every hundred million years, and then they are very specifically pointed. So it would have 10,000 places to point, and one of those 10,000 places would be pointed towards the Earth. So you sort of saying that, you know, over, if you had a, a trillion years, this might happen to the Earth. But, uh, you know, the Earth's only going to last 10 billion years, so it's a very long shot for uh, it to happen. And none of us here are going to last that long either. So these things are directional. They don't just go splat in all directions. They actually point in some directions, what you're saying. Some, some of them, which we call gamma ray bursts, are very directional, and that's what makes them so incredibly bright, is they're almost like a laser beam um, that they put all their energy in one direction. And so if you're lined up, Boy, they appear bright, but of course, if you're, you know, some other direction, you can't even see them because they're not pointed at you. Ah, and that kind of, uh, as you're speaking, I'm trying to find a story I found which uh, talked about black holes being ejected from galaxies. There's two um, black holes, and one of them, uh, the gravitational forces are so great that it actually flicks the other one out, and it shoots out into the void. I guess that. I don't know how how credible that story is, but that's... Yeah, you need to actually have three things um, involved. Two objects can't do this. It has to be three. And so um, there was a story of a star that was just found by one of my colleagues who I'm working with on SkyMapper, and we'll get to this at some point, where there's a star that's been thrown out of the center of the Milky Way by the black hole, and it was clearly orbiting another star. And when you get those two stars coming in... The one star will get too close to the black hole and it'll flick it off that star and can throw it out at 1,000 or 2,000 kilometers per second. And one of these was just found and reported uh, this week. Um, and so that's the idea. But two black holes, it turns out, they you can't do this. You've got to have three. Oh, so two ganging up on the other one? Yeah. They're, they're like club bouncers. Yeah, you can't. It turns out you're either bound or you're not with two. It's only when there's three that you can do some funny business and, and sort of throw something out. So it's like a slingshot? Yep. 
wow. exactly like a slingshot. And the energies involved. Uh, it never ceases to amaze me when we're talking about astronomy how we have to pick up bigger and bigger words for energy. You know, we talk about the sun and you know, and you think, well, that's very energetic. And then, well, really, it's not much compared to a supernova. And then you've got a, a gamma ray burster, and then you've got quasars, and you've got black holes and things. Just shutting a black hole, you can just say it, but you know, when. <laughs> well, we tend to measure things at how bright they are relative to the sun or how powerful they are relative to the sun, but you're all right, there are some things that we deal with which are 16 orders of magnitude brighter or more powerful than the sun. And so that's a, that's a lot more than the sun. It becomes kind of a funny word to describe. Yeah. Yeah. It's like saying a lot, you know, is a grain of sand as to, you know, air's rock or something like that. Yep. Well, here's, here's a couple of quick ones before we break to attract this day in science and nothing to do with astronomy, but I like them, and so I'm going to tell you anyway. Instant coffee. And in 1938, Nescafe Instant Coffee was commercially introduced in Switzerland by the Nestle Company. There you go, and it assists oh, the Brazilian government in solving its coffee surplus problem. So what are we going to do with this coffee line? We'll turn it into instant. And uh, so in 1881, uh, Dr. Satori Kato of Japan presented the first instant coffee during a Pan-American World Fair. It was patented in 1903 with Nestle. They improved their production process. And instant coffee was made with a blend of beans mixed with blending drum and da-da-da-da. There you go. Fuzzy Logic is powered by coffee. And this one is also the the final one for Drinier Paper Making Machine Patent. We're into the deep and meaningful now. Uh, In 1806, a... British patent number da 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 was dated for Henry Fordinier's paper making machine. And I think we're going to bring you a bit of Beatles now. This one is Mother Nature's Son, chosen for you today by our guest, Dr. Brian Schmidt, a cosmologist and astronomer from Mount Stromlo Observatory. My name is Rod, and also on the show with us this morning, Amon Lindsay here on Community Radio 2 X. Oh, beautiful music there from the Beatles' White Album, Mother Nature's Son, here on Community Radio 2XX. My name is Rod. Amon is joining me this morning, and our guest is Dr. Brian Schmidt, cosmologist and astronomer from Mount Stromlo. Now, Brian, let's talk a little bit more about cosmology. What are some of the big questions? What are the big questions in cosmology, do you think? Well, cosmology uh, has changed a bit over the last uh, decade because we've been incredibly successful over the last 10 or 15 years figuring out the, the, what I think were the big questions for the last 100 years of cosmology, which is how big is the universe, how old is the universe, so how big is the universe, it appears to be very close to being infinite in size, we can't absolutely be sure it's infinite, but it's a lot bigger than anything we can see, how old is the universe, it's 13.7 billion years old. What's the universe made out of? Well, it's made out of 4.5% atoms, the stuff that uh, we're all made out of and what Earth's made out of and which we can see. It's about um, 4%, 4.5%, or sorry, it's uh, about 22.5% dark matter, which is stuff that has gravity, but we don't know what it is yet. We think it might be some sort of particle that whizzes through the Earth. And then uh, my own personal contribution is that about uh, 72-73% of the universe is something we call dark energy, which is causing the universe to expand at an ever-increasing rate. But we have no clue what that stuff is. It seems like to be energy tied to space itself. So that's uh, what we've done in the last uh, 10 years. And we're still trying to figure out, of course, what 95.5% of the universe really is, since that still is a big mystery. But then there's some other, maybe easier questions, which is, how did the first galaxies and stars form? How did the universe become what it is today and, and sort of emerge out of this soup of hydrogen and helium that it was born um, out of the Big Bang you know, 13.7 billion years ago? So isn't it, let's talk about the galaxies then, the, where they came from. So if the universe started at a singularity, a point of, if I correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, of no dimensions almost, it's just basically a point in space-time, 
and then it kind of erupted in some way and from there came the clumpiness that gave us the galaxies. Have I crudely got that right? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't want to say that it came from um, you know, no dimensions or anything. It, we're, we're not sure what it came out of. We do know that it, it, would, it would seem that the universe started 13.7 billion years ago and, and it was hot, it was really, really dense and if you keep running back, you say, ah, oh, it started as a singularity. Well, we're not sure. We, we extrapolate to that, but we're not really sure what happened before that. But we do know that um, the universe was hot. We can sort of know what the conditions were when it was roughly, oh, very well about a minute after the Big Bang, because that's when the hydrogen and helium in the universe was made, and we can predict very accurately how much of that stuff there is in the universe. Turns out about uh, 24 and a little bit percent of the universe is helium, and the rest is hydrogen, and there's tiny amounts of things like deuterium and lithium. And then the universe continued to expand, and we can see it directly in something we call the cosmic microwave background. So here we're looking back to the universe when it was 380,000 years old, and the universe is very smooth, smoother than a billiard ball, but we can still see the bumps and wiggles in it at that time. And it turns out that the the, the, the peak to valleys are about one part in a hundred thousand um, of the universe. That is, that's how big the lumps in, in, universe, in the universe were. And that means the universe is very, very smooth. And those bumps evolved from 380,000 years after the Big Bang to the current 13.7 billion years later to form the galaxies and stars that we see today. And that that you can imagine that being quite a complicated process where you turn something very, very smooth into the entire universe we know today. And that's sort of one of the big questions. It must be slightly frustrating because there was no camera to record the events back there. It's sort of like a, a crash scene investigation where you can see the skid marks, the pile of metal, and then you're trying to track backwards and work out what led to what you see now. It's actually better than that because when we look a long ways away, we're looking back in time. So when we look back at the cosmic microwave background, we really are actually seeing the universe as it was 13.7 billion years ago. And so we have this time machine that works one direction where information takes time to get us. So when I look at an object that's 13.7 billion light years in distance, I'm looking 13.7 billion light, uh, years in the past. So it's actually better than a crash scene investigation when we can look directly at what was going on with the universe in that case. So it's the further out we look, the further back in time we're looking. That's correct. But there is this, there's this veil where things become opaque beyond that point, isn't that right? So that's, that's this cosmic microwave background. The universe, when it was uh, born, hot, and the, all the hydrogen and helium that were created, well, when the universe is very hot, they have their electrons stripped off them. And so you have the protons and neutrons together, and then you have the electrons. Now, electrons reflect light really, really well. And so when the light in the universe was bouncing around, it sort of bounced from electron to electron to electron. Magically, when the universe was 380,000 years old, it, was, it had been cooling since the time of the Big Bang. At that time, it went to a temperature of about 3,000 degrees uh, Celsius. And at that point, the electrons are able to join up with their with their, their their nucleuses with their protons in the case of hydrogen, um, and suddenly all the electrons that are were bouncing around in the universe are gone. They're all bound to these atoms, and that made the universe suddenly become transparent. And so the light, which had been bouncing from atom to atom and atom, and that just makes the universe look like a fog. Suddenly the fog is lifted when these electrons become bound to their atoms, and that light is what's traveled through us, and that is the cosmic microwave background that we see. And how, how, how thick or how wide is that period? Did that happen really, really suddenly? It happened over a period of probably on order of about 5,000 years, and so it's not perfectly, you know, it's not just this wall where the fog just goes away, but from astro astronomical terms, it's very, very fast. So, yeah, it was a very short period of time where the fog suddenly just disappeared. Now, actually, I wonder sometimes, too, whether accountants can help us here, which might seem an odd thing to say, but um, 
I used to run a company, and um, at one point I had a little certain financial thing I had to solve, and my friend who was good with accounting said, what we'll do is we'll take this transaction here, this $10,000 from there, and we'll, at the same time we'll take $10,000 from there, and somehow the whole thing is a net balance, right? But there's these transactions going on. And uh, the reason I'm hitting this line, because I, everybody should know that Dr. Brian Schmidt is frowning at me at this point because he's wondering where I'm getting at. But I'm talking about like a zero balance ledger, yet you manage to create something out of it. And you do it by taking $5,000 this way, $5,000 that way, and something happens. So from a, from a net zero point, which is the singularity, uh, somehow the universe springs. Does that, does that sort of make sense? Well, no. I think that the, the, the reality is we don't know what the universe sprung out of. And they, you know, that's a big mystery, and we may never know it. I mean, I, like, I never want to say never, but it is very difficult. So we always do think there is a, as you say, a... Uh, a balance, uh, nothing, it's, it's very difficult to imagine something being created out of nothing, but it can also equally be very difficult to know what everything was created out of because the physics and stuff we use, the tools we use to understand the universe are potentially erased because you've gone so far back in the, in, you, you have to extrapolate so far beyond what we know that you really, most of the stuff we would know would be erased. It may well be that the laws of physics were actually created in, in what came next. Oh, that's my own fault for talking about accounting in the science program. <laughs> no, but that's a good way to describe uh, that you're right. You can't create anything. You, you, there's always, you always got to, when you create something, it's always created out of something else. And uh, everything adds up in the universe. All right. Well, while we think about that, I think we might uh, break to another track. And uh, look, when we come back, I have a question for uh, Dr. Brian Schmidt, which I got from uh, a university lecturer out at the University of Canberra a couple of days ago, and he's been talking about the physics curriculum for our high schools and colleges, and he said something really interesting, and that was, if you were to leave behind a message for somebody who was to arrive on Earth knowing nothing, assuming they know how to eat and feed themselves and so on, what one piece of information would you give them? What one, and another way of thinking about it is if I was to die today and I was to leave behind, a, I've got an A4 sheet of paper in my hand, I can write one message on it, what would I say? And I thought that's such an interesting question. I might actually make it a, a semi-regular part of fuzzy logic. And uh, to go on a similar theme then, here is the third atom bomb, and this is by Ian White, who's a busker I bought an album from, and uh, for when we had Phil Nicholson from Cornell University recently... He liked this sort of music, so this is a few, Phil, and also for Dr. Brian Schmidt from Mount Stromlo, myself, Rod, and Amon here on Fuzzy Logic. Here it comes. And a fairly maudlin piece of music there about the last atom bomb from Ian White. But we are still here. We didn't get hit by a bomb. My name is Rod, and you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. My guest this morning, Dr. Brian Schmidt from the Mount Stromlo Observatory and Amon. So, uh, Brian, I've given you a bit of time to think about that question. I have to say it is a tough one. What piece of information would you give to someone if they didn't know anything else? And uh, what, did you, what did you think about that? Well, you know, as a scientist, you have to say, I, I, ultimately, I'm a, prag, uh, you know, a pragmatist. So, well, I would like to say, ah, um, you know, if, if you think, what's the most elegant scientific theory that's the hardest to come up with? General relativity by Einstein, which is the theory of gravitation, is incredibly, was an amazing leap for humanity and probably could have taken a lot longer to happen had Einstein not happened, ha, uh, you know, had not occurred. But, Pragmatically, that's not, you know, it helps GPSs and work, and probably for someone just arriving wouldn't be the best thing. So I'm just trying to think of the most fundamental, profound change for humanity. And I think probably the steam engine, when I really come down to it, has probably did more to bring humanity where it is than anything else. So I'm fairly mundane. But, uh, yeah, it sort of started the technological revolution. So I'd probably tell them about the steam engine. 
Well, that, that, that's pretty profound. I mean, that's harnessing energy for doing work to, to huma- for humanity, helps to feed us and transport us around and so on. So, well, Actually, speaking of transport, it was thanks to the steam engine that human beings ev- eventually travelled faster than just a standard walking speed. And uh, we could hear the Doppler effect, couldn't we, the, the, you know, the, 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 of the approaching train? Yeah, that was one of the ways it was demonstrated by someone putting a band, uh, a literally a, a little oompa-pa band on a train and having it go by and demonstrating the Doppler effect, yeah. So, um, well, my, my answer to the question is make sure you tune into Fuzzy Logic each Sunday. <laughs> Actually, no, I could probably think of a better one than that. But uh, right now, Brian, you've been involved with this thing called the Sky Mapper. It's got a good name. And my understanding is that it's uh, it looks at a very wide field. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. SkyMapper Telescope was uh, got its birth on the 19th of January 2003 when the Great Melbourne Telescope burned to the ground because the Great Melbourne Telescope uh, had 18 days earlier been funded to do a survey of the southern sky, a digital digital sky. This is the bushfires of 2003, yes. So on the 18th of January, the telescope I was going to use to do that survey burned to the ground, and so we had to come up with a new plan. And so under the direction of um, the director of Mount Stromo, Penny Sackett at the time, uh, she went and said, well, what should we do uh, to get back on our feet? And we all thought about it, and SkyMapper was the answer. That is a telescope dedicated to mapping the cosmos with unprecedented accuracy um, and the whole southern sky, our part of the, the, the world. And so it has taken a while. It's a huge effort to build a new telescope and to create a what is Australia's largest digital camera, a 268-megapixel uh, camera that we built up at Mount Stromlo. It has $2.5 million worth of silicon in it. Just That's the detectors. Uh, it's very, very sensitive. And uh, that's now up on the telescope, and we're beginning to take uh, data. We still have to get the telescope tweaked up to work just perfectly, but we are beginning to produce our first beautiful images of the sky just in the last couple months. Oh, well, so as an amateur photographer, I'm now experiencing lens envy. In my bag here, I've got an 18-megapixel camera, so I think I've been categorically beaten on that one. Uh, I've got some statistics on the uh, sky mapper here in front of me. So it's, as you said, 1.35 metres, and it shoots at an aperture of f7.9. Uh, it should be 4.7, actually. Oh, sorry, I'm silly me. It is 4.79, yes. Yeah. Beg your pardon. Uh, and it captures a region of the sky 29 times larger than the moon. So it's looking at a very wide field, is that right? It looks at a huge field, 29 times bigger than the full moon. But within that, it, it, the, the, the level of detail is that, uh, is as good as, um, well, it's, it's a thousand times more detail than the human eye can see, and it can see a million times fainter than the human eye can see. So it really takes this amazingly uh, deep photo of the sky over this huge field of view, and that's why it's so useful. Uh, one, one thing I'm wondering about is the, the, the number of telescopes and things pointing up at the sky. Ha, there can't be any of it that we haven't actually um, photographed or imaged in some way yet. I mean, how much left is there? Well, to, to amazingly look at? enough, the entire sky has been photographed on old emulsion-style Kodak film, and while it makes very pretty pictures, it's not very good for saying that star is exactly this brightness and is exactly made out of these elements and has exactly this size, where our survey, digital survey, gives us a very precise, better than 1% measurement of the billions of objects in the southern sky. And so Believe it or not, most telescopes see tiny little parts of the sky, and consequently, you know, the Hubble, the Hubble telescope, for example, would take a, a, a hundred million years to do this survey of the southern sky because it just doesn't look at much sky at a time. So this is going on into uncharted territory. No, there is not a digital map in in optical light of the southern sky. That's why we're doing it. Oh, and okay. So here's another statistic: it's generating 100 megabytes of data per second during every clear night. That's a massive amount of data. So that totals 500 terabytes, 100,000 DVDs. Um, So is it also a fact that you're taking pictures of the same part of the sky over time? It's not just 
the picture at that point, at that moment. That's right. So not only are we taking the first digital map of the southern sky, we're also then going to hit each part of the sky 36 times. So we get a bunch of colors, and we get to see how the stars are moving, because stars move tiny amounts uh, across the sky. But also stars can vary, or supernovae can explode, and so we're really looking at how the sky evolves over time, in addition to just mapping out where, what it's doing now. Are you, are you looking for things like Earth grazing asteroids and so on, and comets? And It, it turns out that uh, although we can do that, there are some other experiments that are a little better at that, that are just dedicated. So the Uppsala-Schmidt uh, telescope up at Siding Springs, Rob McNaught, people will remember Comet McNaught, well, he heads that effort up, and that's part of the ANU as well. And it's specifically targeting, for example, potential Earth colliding asteroids, and it's a little better at that than us. If we spent all of our life doing that, then we'd be better than them, but uh, uh, they do. They get most of the way there with that facility. And um, now, Pluto was discovered using this sort of technique, wasn't it? That's correct. So uh, Pluto was uh, found by Clyde Tombaugh looking and taking a picture and then waiting a couple of days and taking another picture, and he saw this little object moving across the sky and so if there are any Plutos, it turns out the southern sky has never really been searched for Pluto very well, or Pluto-like object. There could be one lurking in the southern sky that's so far undetected. If it's there, we'll find it. And we're talking astronomy and cosmology with Dr. Brian Schmidt. And um, now on your website, Brian, you refer to a thing called um, Super Macho. What's a Super Macho apart from a fuzzy logic science show presenter? So a super macho uh, is an experiment that was mapping part of the uh, sky. So the telescope that burned down in 2003 uh, had did something called the macho experiment from uh, Mount Stromwell, where it mapped out about 50 million stars across the nearest galaxy, the Large Magellanic Cloud, and looked for evidence for dark matter in the form of what we call machos. That's massive, compact halo objects. And these are compared to WIMPs, weakly interacting massive particles, which would not cause stars in that galaxy to suddenly get brighter and fainter due to gravitational lensing. So Supermacho was an experiment done in Chile that I was part of that went through and did this experiment on a four-meter, a big, big telescope called the Blanco Telescope, same telescope we use to discover dark energy. Um, and that experiment has just finished up. And interestingly enough, machos do not appear to be what's causing dark matter, but WIMPs are still a good candidate. So WIMPs being some sort of uh, subatomic particles? It would be some sort of um, non-atomic particle. So uh, it would be something that possibly the Large Hadron Collider might discover. It might not. We don't know. But the idea is these would be like really big neutrinos. A neutrino can go right through the Earth well, the idea is one of these things would be maybe be a hundred, a thousand, or a million times larger than a proton, but be able to zip right through the Earth because it doesn't interact with anything via that electrical or nuclear forces. But it does have a gravitational effect. But it does have gravity in the same way that an atom does. It's a little bit embarrassing. So we talked about accounting accountants before. It's almost like an accounting error that leads to this conclusion. I mean, the numbers don't add up, so it must be coming from somewhere, so we... No? Well, we see gravity, so we know that gravity is there, and we can, it turns out, using the uh, cosmic microwave background, those little bumps and wiggles in the very early universe, that allows us to count how many atoms there are in the universe very, very accurately. And we know that the gravity of the universe is six and a half times stronger than the gravity from atoms. And so you're right, there's an accounting error. Uh, consequently, we know to get that gravity to, to really add up, we need something has gravity-like atoms, but is not atomic. And so that's where this idea of dark matter or wimps come from. So you're angling towards the, the, wimps, the wimps theory at the moment? I think that's the one that really makes sense. Now, some people think it might just be the gravity's broken. And one of the things that SkyMapper, for example, is doing is going to measure how well gravity works compared to general relativity uh, by measuring the motions of galaxies very, very accurately. General relativity makes a very distinct prediction of how galaxies should be moving relative to each other. We're going to test that. Oh, so you're looking for anomalies in that? 
Yeah, we're going to be looking to make sure that uh, the galaxies are moving as general relativity predicts they should. If they're not, then we'll know that maybe gravity is broken and Einstein didn't quite get it right. So how do you know how they're moving? So by measuring distances in the universe and measuring um, sort of how far objects are apart, we can actually see motions. We can infer motions of these galaxies in the universe. And of course, their motions are caused by gravity. And so by measuring hundreds of thousands of objects across the sky and their motions, we can very accurately measure how gravity between objects is causing the, the objects to move around and sort of make a measurement of how gravity works on these very large scales. So what do you think the large scale structure of the cosmos or the universe is? Well, we can, we've here in Australia made, uh, not myself, but one of my colleagues, Matthew Collis, and uh, as part of the two degree redshift survey, mapped out 240,000 galaxies across the sky. And so we know that the structure of the universe is sort of this foam-like structure, uh, but they haven't been able to measure the motions. And so we know what it looks like. Now what we want to do is measure the motions of those objects, and those motions then will tell us the gravity. So interesting, we have two ways of looking at the foam. We have the sponge material itself, and then we have the holes. We have the gaps. Yeah, the holes are where are, are interesting, of course, because we don't see much there, and so it's kind of difficult to know much about nothing. Now, the theory would indicate that there's not much dark matter in that foam, and uh, that's one of the things we can also test, is by measuring the motions of objects, we can make sure that the theory is right, that the dark matter is more or less where the light matter is, the stuff that's emitting light, um, and it's not, hopefully, in those voids where uh, our, our theories would indicate there shouldn't be much dark matter. But if there's nothing coming out of those voids, you have no way to test it, do you? Well, again, uh, the, the signature of how gravity, you know, nothing has no gravity. And so that's a different signature than if there is dark matter in there who doesn't emit any light, so we don't see it, but its gravity would still be there. And so it would put a different signature on the motions of objects in the universe. I, I, I love the way the astro astronomers just bandy around terms like, you know, 200,000 galaxies and so on. It's like, you know, when we look up at the sky, we're only seeing our local galaxy, right? Well, you see the Milky Way, and if you look to the south, you can see the large and the small Magellanic clouds, which are the little fuzzy bits mm -hmm. um, that uh, are really quite remarkable to look at. In the northern hemisphere, you can see the Andromeda galaxy and the Triangulum galaxy, if you have very good eyesight in the north, so that's where I grew up. Uh, but those, yeah, that's it. Those are the, that's the limit of the galaxies you can see. So four galaxies we can see bits of, mainly uh, just our local, the, the Milky Way, and but the, the scale of that is very small compared to... I, I look at these pictures from the Astronomy Picture of the Day website and you see this field and it's got... The whole thing is just sprayed with galaxies and there's like 100, there's 100 million stars or something in each galaxy, give or take. Oh, they're probably more like about uh, a trillion stars yeah. uh, in each galaxy. And uh, you know, Milky Way has about a trillion stars, maybe a, a hundred, hundred million uh, and then, yeah, we can we look out. You, there's about a trillion galaxies available to, that we can see uh, right now um, if we added up the entire sky. So, how long do you think it'll be before you get some kind of answers out of the sky mapper? Well, we will start getting our first answers out very quickly. So, one of the things that we're looking at, I told you earlier about the idea of seeing how the universe is born. So, sky mapper will be looking for the first. Uh, black holes in the universe. They have a very distinct red color, which, but there's only a few of them across the sky. So there are three of these objects known right now in the whole of the sky. Sky Mapper, we think, will be able to find about 50 of them by their very distinct color. And so we're hoping to start finding those right away in the next few months. Um, that would be our hope. Oh, well, we'll look forward to hearing about that. Maybe we can do an update here on Fuzzy. Um, so just run that by me again. Three of these black holes that are red? Yeah, so it turns out that as objects get further and further away, their light gets shifted more and more uh, redward. That's the Doppler effect. It's not actually the Doppler effect in this case. It's a general relativity version of the Doppler effect, where the light of objects gets stretched. And so that light of these quasars, which started off very, very blue, actually becomes very red by the time it reaches the Earth. 
And so there are really no star, there are very few stars in the sky that look like one of these. And so by taking, I'm looking at a billion objects in the sky, we can pick out the few really weird ones, which we know have this distinct signature of being very distant. And so right now there are three objects that are seen such that their light is stretched so much that you can't see any uh, light coming out of the objects in the optical part of the spectrum. That is the part our eyes can see. You can only see it in the near-infrared. So SkyMapper has some sensitivity in the near-infrared, stuff our light can't, our eyes can't see. And so we're hoping to find these objects, which we think are about, about 500 million years after the Big Bang is when they, when they were created. And uh, we're hoping to be able to, I say, map out several of these uh, across the sky in the next uh, couple of years. So the distinguishing features of quasars being the very oldest parts of the universe? So the quasars themselves are what we believe are supermassive black holes. So these are black holes which are probably, in these cases, a billion times the mass of the sun. And when they are able to have material fall on them, and they, get, they are very, very bright. And so these things, there's three of them seen back you know, when the universe was 500 million years old. Uh, and that seems 500 million years old sounds like a long time, but it's 95, 96% of the way back to the Big Bang. So it really is looking a long ways back to the beginning of the, the universe. And uh, so, yeah, that distinct signature is a way of really looking at the brightest, earliest things in the universe. Wow. Now, a moment ago you mentioned the Large Hadron Collider at CERN in Switzerland. And I had a story up on the web, and I got contacted by somebody who was part of the coalition to uh, bring it to a stop because it was going to end the world and end the universe and so on. But one of the things that I heard about the Large Hadron Collider was that they're going to be generating micro black holes as part of their uh, activity there. Do you think that's actually likely? Did uh, you know enough about that? There is certainly no physical way that we can think to do it. So the Large Hadron Collider is this amazingly powerful scientific instrument but compared to what we have in astronomy you know in the cosmos it's nothing <laughs> right and so the the energies that the large hadron collider creates are routinely throughout the universe and you know the universe isn't just popping up with black holes everywhere there are very very few of them and so i think the the risk of the large hadron collider doing anything to us here on earth is is sufficiently close to zero as to not being a real worry it's interesting. It kind of reflects a public distrust of uh, of science and, and what we do. And, and while we played a song about the atom bomb a moment ago, and I guess in a way I can relate to that, but um, of course it's the way you use this knowledge, not the knowledge of itself. Absolutely. And it is reassuring to hear about that. Hopefully the effects of the Hadron Collider are certainly uh, restricts that local space. But maybe if you look at uh, things like, well, so the speed of sound, a uh, popular law was uh, that if you went Beyond the speed of sound, uh, a person's ears would fall off. I mean, such was the, well, <laughs> almost superstition that went with all these scientific uh, developments. And actually, you know, I can remember, I'm old enough to remember the first moon, ma- moon landing. I wasn't personally there, but uh, I remember it being talked about. And there was this discussion in the newspaper about, I can't remember how it went, or something like the, 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 the lander was going to burst into flames for some reason, or well, not flames, but it was going to be detonated because of some effect that, you know, we hadn't thought of. Uh, but look, that uh, brings us to a close here on uh, Fuzzy Logic, and uh, I'm going to play another song from the White Album to close us out. But you have been listening to myself, Rod, to Amon, and I'm very pleased to say we've had our guest this morning, Dr. Brian Schmidt from Mount Stromlo Observatory. It's a pleasure to have you, uh, Brian. Great My pleasure. pleasure. Yeah.